0: To ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen, and today we are in studio in New York City at Gotham Production Studio. I'm so excited to welcome Leela Ramna to the podcast. Leela, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Caitlin. Great to be here. So Leela is the Senior Vice President and Head of ESG at Warburg Pincus, a private equity firm, where she leads global ESG strategy for the firm and collaborates with investment teams and portfolio companies to drive and optimize implementation. She also manages key partnerships. Leela has 20 years of experience working across capital markets, emerging markets, and ESG. She's a former term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and is a board member of Climco, and ownership works Leela we're so excited to have you on today to talk about the private equity perspective on esG so thank you for coming out let's start with a little bit about what is who is Warburg Pincus um to just kind of set the stage for folks
1: sure um, and super thrilled to be here I've been an avid listener um well before we were uh, an investor in climbco and, oh. and continue to be so so um, so yeah, Warburg Pincus is a global private equity firm. We, our specialization is in growth equity. So we invest in all across all life cycles of investments from earlier stage companies through later stage buyouts and everything in between. We have, or I would say we're probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest private equity firms out there. We've been wow. in the market for over 55 years. And we've, we have investors, investment team professionals across the globe. So we have a strong presence in the US, Europe, in Asia, we're in China, Southeast Asia and India. Actually, we've been in China and India for over 25 years. Wow. And uh, we have an office in, in Brazil as well. We also invest across industries. So um, we invest from industrials to healthcare to technology, um, Ranging from those to real estate in Asia, um, to a pretty broad range of industries,
0: which um, makes makes my job fun. Yeah. It's a it's a, a never a dull moment, I'd say. And it demonstrates that there's there's not a one size fits all for ESG, right? It has to be apt for the industry for the company. Um, And I know you have quite a perspective dealing with all sorts of different companies in your portfolio for that. Let's start a little bit with your background journey. How did you get into ESG, so to speak, and end up at, you know, this huge global private equity firm?
1: Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, I have 20 years of experience across financial markets. Um, but if I look look back of course hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's always interesting when I look back because this could couldn't be a more kind of culmination of all the different roles I've had over the years. Um, I'd say on a personal level, it's been really rewarding and interesting to kind of kind of pull everything together. The first 10 years of my career first half of my career was more on in in more traditional finance i was working in um the insurance industry and the mortgage-backed securities area in the lead up to the global financial crisis and then i worked in 2008 yeah 2008 and and then i worked at barclays in emerging markets uh following that so during a huge run in in emerging markets, but also during the European debt crisis. Um, So that that was a really interesting time and gave me a perspective on how different political macro economic risks can really impact different companies around the world. Uh, But I've always had a passion for impact and ESG type things, even though I didn't know it was called ESG at the time. And uh, I kind of traded in my my job at Barclays and went out to to Ken, actually East Africa to Kenya, the nonprofit called TechnoServe where I worked with the, on a project connecting smallholder farmers to global supply chains. And wow. it was super interesting working in the fields um, and kind of being part of the, the really burgeoning social enterprise movement in hmm. East Africa. Um, I realized very quickly that I was not a person to live on a one-acre plot in central Kenya, but I really acknowledged the power of finance and how it can be influenced by, but also influence a lot of environmental and social factors. So I wow. came back to New York and got involved with an emerging manager that was focused on also supply chains, but this time in the mm-hmm. fashion supply chain. So we did a lot of work looking at, um, you know, factories in Southeast Asia and impacts on so- on the workers' environments, um, sustainability issues and how that could be linked to creating value from companies and global brands. So um and then and then I was really lucky to get the opportunity at Warper Pincus. And about four years ago I joined the firm as global head of ESG or head of ESG globally. And in that role, Topco work with on the corporate sustainability uh policies and processes um, are reporting to our investors which is a key area of how we get our financing and, and our money is from our asset owners around the world that are really interested in how we are tracking ESG factors, and I can talk a bit about what that means. Second is I work very closely with our investment teams, which are investment professionals that, that have been looking at all sorts of issues from a long-term view, but helping them understand what are the new ESG issues that they should be looking at as we look at different sectors, and we can talk about materiality of what, what's important to each sector in a moment. And then finally, I think a lot of fun that I have is working with our portfolio companies. And yeah. given the types of different types of companies that we work with and different stages, a lot of my work and my team's work is helping meet companies where they are and help them understand how they can potentially grow their businesses through ESG efforts.
0: It sounds so interesting. And to your point, it's like those things you look back on, you're like, oh, that really did feed into this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the time, you know, not necessarily seeing where the path goes, but it does go somewhere really cool. So um, thanks for sharing your journey. I know a lot of our listeners love to hear how people got into these roles. I want to just bring up, before we go too far, that just the disclosure, and this is all public, of course, um, that of our relationship, the Kleimco-Warburg-Pincus relationship. Warburg invested in Climco um, last year, about a year ago, exactly. Um, so why the Climbco investment? Why now? And of course, you're, um, you were chosen to be one of our board members, which we're very grateful for as well
1: sure yeah so we're super excited about our investment in Climbco. i'd say as we look at the different sectors that we're invested in i mentioned industrials and one component of that is the energy transition and sustainability and it's something that we've invested in over decades in different areas we've done some investments in financing of solar solar panels or microgrids um, but now this really expanded and we've made a much more intentional effort around investing in that category given all the tailwinds regulatory tailwinds and market tailwinds around the sector and so we've invested our most of our investing is around you know power and decarbonization if you were to kind of it's hard to put everything into a bucket, but those are yeah. probably the two categories. So um, we've made a lot of recent investments in that space. And, and carbon markets is something that we've been f- tracking for, for some time now. And I think just given the macro tailwinds around the sector, given all the climate commitments that have come into the market recently, and given the lack of technology today that can really address and help companies meet those targets, there's been a huge amount of interest in the sector. I mean, I, I've actually been to probably five or six conferences in the last few months um, from wow. the from the finance industry focused on carbon markets. It's wow. an area that's very important. But for us, it was also really important to be connected and, and invested in a, in a leadership team and a company that has high orientation around quality and has really the creds around the industry around, you know, create, c- maintaining that quality as the company scales, and also, you know, just has done the hard work. And I think that's what was really appealing to us in climbco is, you know, Bill and the team, and you all have spent a lot of time taking on the hardest to decarbonize industries and creating methodologies and pressure testing them. And, and you know, the, the establishment of the company since 2009 really shows, you know, a lot of different cycles and resilience through those cycles i came on board uh, as a as a board member um Mm -hmm. with the investment and even though i'm not on directly on the investment team a lot of my work is kind of during due diligence thinking through you know is this a company that we want to be backing um does it have the right quality standards would it would a energy transition team um uh, energy transition company stand up to all of the esg requirements that we would ask of any of our companies and it's even more important for you know companies in that sector for credibility mm. and greenwashing concerns so we were super excited about the investment in climco because it stood yeah. up to that test
0: oh yeah the, that's that's so good to hear the governance is so important in this space um understanding your process i mean the the scientific prowess on our team that really can get into the weeds of why something is good quality or why it isn't, um, you know, it's it's something that certainly I'm learning about. I know listeners know I started more on the corporate ESG side, so I've learned a ton coming to climb about about markets and in this space. So the conversations we have are certainly that governance piece for us, the G. Yes, it's impact. It's the E. It's the social co-benefits. It's that G is what's very salient right now. And we stand behind our, our methodologies and our processes, right? So um, very cool. Well, let's go back to private markets, right? So there is perhaps there are perhaps differences in how uh, folks in private markets think about ESG versus public markets. Could you tell us what you think about that?
1: Sure. So I think, you know, first of all, I'll just start out by defining what ESG is and yes, what it is right. not. Um, Let's do that. Because I think um, <laughs> now Let's more than up. ever, it's, uh, yeah, it's important <laughs> to do that. And I think, you know, and yeah. I think that is maybe a, a nuance here because I think you know there there is a lot of different ways that public markets have approached ESG. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say at Warburg Pincus and broad more broadly among my, our, our peers in the industry. Um, the way that many firms and private markets and private equity think about e s g is start by what we what we don't think it is. we don't yeah, um we yeah. don't see it as an asset class and we don't see it as a divestment divestment criteria. We also don't see it as you mentioned earlier, it's not a one size fits all and something that can be packaged really neatly as much as we would love to framework that kind of is one size fits all for for all companies. What we do think is that we we see e s g as a lens and and that's you know that's how we when we're looking at any investment, we look at all the financial business drivers and macro drivers and regulatory environment around every investment. And so when we think about environmental, social governance factors, we see them as just an extra lens on how we can look at investments and see how a company can continue to preserve um, its value in the market. And at worst, a company that mismanages these issues can erode value. So we wanna protect against the downside there. Mm -hmm. And on the upside, you know, we really see that this is an opportunity To create value for companies that can manage it well so this is how we see it as a lens and we see it as um, a set of factors that we look at alongside financial and um, business factors to be able to help us make better decisions Um, and i think you know we talked about this a little bit before but materiality is a huge Piece of that, and I think you know, on private markets, it's interesting that a little bit different from public markets is that there isn't that much data. um, On one hand, on the other hand, we typically take to your point about governance. We usually take governance in our companies, and I think that gives Mm -hmm. us a very close view and on a company, and allows us to kind of help kind of guide um, companies on understanding what issues may be relevant to their businesses. So. it's interesting looking at our portfolio a lot of our companies given the stage and the and the types of companies they are many of them don't have a head of esg or head of sustainability Um, but it makes for very very um interesting conversations with their ceos or cfos or chros around real tactical things that integrate um ESG type issues into business decision making and how we evaluate companies. So I think that's a big nuance here is around, you know, there is l- less data, but I would say there's more ability to influence and act. Hmm. Um, and, and a large part of how we evaluate companies as management teams and making sure this is, we have values aligned with man- with management teams and we really, we pick management teams that we believe in so we can help. Um, help them grow and bring resources. And I, I would say ESG is an area that we've gotten so much incoming from management teams around wanting support and help because they see the value of focusing on these issues in their own ecosystems to help their companies thrive.
0: I love the way you defined it. And I think it's very much aligned with how we have always defined it at ESG Decoded. But I love, so for that kind of quick takeaway for people to be thinking about it's protecting against downside risk, but also what's the upside, right? Yeah. Where, where is there opportunity um, from focusing on a particular issue? Um, so I think I love that kind of framing of it. You're head of ESG at a global private equity firm, one of the oldest, like you said, very, very well established. I know you're very plugged into the macro trends. Could you tell us a little bit about trends from your perspective?
1: Sure. So I would say there are three main areas that we're spending a lot of time thinking about and that are really influencing our industry. this regulation, climate, and ESG data. And mm-hmm. they're all very much intertwined, but I can talk through each of, the, each of those. So... For regulation is interesting because, um, given you know, for, for for funds that are investing or marketing securities into Europe or are domiciled in Europe, there's, um, as you probably know, the SFDR, the Sustainable Finance Disgro- Disclosure Regulations for the financial industry, and this is basically um, requiring any funds that are being marketed into the EU to actually classify their funds in terms of how their level of ESG um integration or um how how they're promoting esg factors and and making it very clear around disclosures a lot of these funds if if they are regulated having to report not only on how they're disclosing but also how they are uh, collecting metrics from their underlying portfolio companies and that's mm-hmm. something that has been a huge influence on our industry and and a lot of firms in the private equity markets have been spending a lot of time yeah. figuring out how the regulation impacts them directly but also portfolio companies and how they can get the the data, the data, which is the right. third point. Regulation, on one hand, from a disclosure perspective, is is a huge trend. And, and you know, in the U.S., we're seeing that as well. The SEC is ha- taking a little different approach, so they are working on their own rules. But um, at its core, you know, there's a lot more focus on greenwashing. And, you know, are you doing what you, you say that you're doing to your limited partners and other folks mm-hmm. in the ecosystem? So that's on the disclosure bit. But there's also, there's a lot of focus on regulation, but on, in terms of opportunities and incentives, the Inflation Reduction Act has really mm-hmm. opened up the investability the of certain sectors the upside mm-hmm. exactly yeah. <laughs> and and you know yeah. legislations around the world are kind of putting you know places like Singapore where they have a carbon tax now and yeah. ratcheting up quickly you know the, the, these are real issues that regulations are really influenced in the way that companies private companies are thinking through these issues hmm. so regulation is one the second is climate and climate is a super interesting you know it's it's a really interesting time I think there's a lot of narrative around you know, public p- companies divesting and and some of their assets going to the dark corners of private equity markets, <laughs> which um, which is interesting because it's yes. it, that's making the assumption that private markets don't have their own influences to do a lot of climate. And mm. I would just say there's tremendous amount of influence to focus on climate, not only from every private equity um, sponsors, investors, limited partners around the world that are making their own climate commitments but also from portfolio companies themselves, just, you know, being able to do business in the world today, most companies, if they're in a supply chain of a larger company, they're going to need to start disclosing. And so it's, it's, um, there's a lot of pressure around kind of, um, and, and, and rightfully so around, you know, the private markets having more focus on climate and impacts of climate. And I think, you know, I was seeing a stat, there was a, I think 90% of global GDP today is covered by net zero commitments and Is that right? Yeah, yeah, either what? through governments that or corporates, me. Wow. which is shocking. Um that and is then shocking. there's another set that I read the other day where it looked at the S&P 500 companies mm-hmm. and it looked at all the 10K's of S&P 500 companies and found that nearly 90% um, of those 10K's had climate uh, climate risk as a disclosure item and so as an express risk so if you think about that okay it's hitting public markets but what i always tell our portfolio companies is the scope three of public companies is your scope one and two yeah so yeah and we're seeing it you know a lot of a lot of private companies are getting rfps on a daily basis we get questions around you know we got this rfp from this from this big customer um i'm so glad that i have this carbon emissions data they can give them or yeah you know can you help me think through th- these type of questions and so i would yeah. say that's the second big thing around that these cl- commitments are going from big commitments to more implementation and how are you doing it? Are you doing it right? And using all the tools that you can on that front.
0: That's interesting The, the RFP stuff, the request for proposal, right? It's almost becoming a requisite for doing business.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's interesting too is that I think focus is on implementation. And I I was at a conference the other day and I saw the CEO of JetBlue speaking, and they made a really ambitious science based target, um, net zero aligned, uh, net zero commitment recently. And but what was interesting about it is for them to get to net zero, they need adequate supply of sustainable aviation fuels, Mm -hmm. and they also need actually one of the biggest areas that would actually really help their emissions profile is actually the FAA refining and and revamping and modernizing its air traffic control um, infrastructure in the US. And Hmm. and so it's interesting because there are certain efforts that are being made in the industry around that, but in the interim, they see carbon offsets as a really important bridge. Solution. And I think, you know, that focus on the high quality credits and firms like Climco and others that are in that industry are so critical in this period of time to really have these companies think through not only how are they going to make the commitment, but also, you know, making the commitment, but also how are they going to action it about it in a credible
0: way. Oh, so, so important. So you've mentioned regulation, climate, and what was your third?
1: So the third is data. And There's been um, an enormous amount of focus on private markets. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot more data available in public markets. Uh, But in private markets, there has been less so, and that's made it more challenging from a benchmarking perspective. And also from from when we're getting these regulations, a lot of the work that's being done in private markets right now is helping private companies think through what are the metrics that they should be measuring for the regulatory purposes but also think through what are the metrics they, they could really use for the whole point of this, which is to really help them manage right. their ESG profile. Yes, it so, goes um, back,
0: back to basics. How ex- can this help your business? <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. So it's it's been an interesting – there's been a lot of work around this, a lot of industry initiatives that are focused on more kind of standardization, on ESG metrics. Um, there's also just a lot of data providers out there that are using – um structured and unstructured data sets to kind of glean more information on portfolio companies and private equity firms and privately held companies i guess the bottom line is that it's better to tell your story before someone else tells it for you because (laughs) there's so much data out there that could be misinterpreted and put into different contexts so
0: yeah
1: um that's that's something that a lot of the industry is navigating today
0: I remember even probably 2017, something like that. I remember going to a sustainable finance conference. It was here in New York, actually. Well, actually, I don't want to say it because my memory—I had babies. <laughs> like, maybe I won't say the name. But one of the data, big data firms, said that they were able to estimate, like at that time. So this is before even the amount of data there is today. They were able to estimate the carbon footprint of a company um, using whatever, AI, analytics, all that mm. kind of thing, 90% of the time they were like right on target. So yeah. even at that time, people were doing these calculations for you. I mean, mm. it's just even more so nowadays. So it is so important, I think, for every company to, to know and own their own data and own their own story around this. And it kind of makes me think, I know you're involved with the Sustainable Markets Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know data is a big focus for you guys there. Can you tell us a little bit more about SMI and and what you're working on?
1: Sure, sure. So, we we joined an organization called the Sustainable Markets Initiative about a year or so ago, and this is this is a broader initiative that now King Charles has has um, kind of pulled together a lot of yeah. CEOs across different industries mm-hmm. to take on different topics within ESG. And so, there was a private equity task force that was pulled together of C- at the CEO level to kind of think through a lot of the initiatives um, and, and really think about the private equity industry and what. What are positive areas of leadership that, the, that these firms could work together on? So as part of that, there are three work streams that came out of that. And what was really interesting for me was that it was the CEOs, and then there was a parallel, what we call an action committee, which is basically heads of ESG at cool. respective firms to really drive through the work. And so there are three work streams that were identified, one on biodiversity, one on climate, and one on ESG metrics. And I think the ESG metrics work stream is, is one that we um, we ended up taking on and worked with a lot of our peers across the industry to think through this issue around metrics and what th- what that means in the private markets. Um, I think there's no shortage of frameworks out there, as you know, um, around ESG metrics and rating agencies and, and whatnot, but it can be very confusing for those of us that are working with portfolio companies that are saying, look, what should we be measuring? How do we do this? Yeah. And, and so what we did was we first identified four use cases for ESG metrics in the private equity industry. So two are very reporting oriented. So one is around our reporting to our limited partners, which is, as I mentioned, this is a, a request that we're getting more and more from our from our investors around what are the underlying data points from our portfolio companies. One is LP reporting, second is regulation. And and you know, if you're regulated under EU, as I mentioned, you're gonna have yeah. to start reporting on that. So there's been a lot of focus on those two categories. There's been less focus on back to what we were saying before, <laughs> first principles of like why are we collecting this data to begin with? What's the point? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and so we define, you know, two use cases for that. One is to make better investment decisions again that broader set of risks and opportunities and that the wider aperture on those on those issues and then the second is helping portfolio companies be able to manage within their own ecosystems in the most you know helpful way for them so they can measure what's what's most manageable and but also most most um, meaningful to their own set of stakeholders. And so we came together and, um, thought through a lot of these issues and a lot, you know, a lot of ra- big range of firms and, yeah. and, um, you know, in different jurisdictions and, and we came up with a three-step process of how to think through this and our hope is that, you know, this will be helpful for not only asset owners, the limit, the limited partners that are trying to gather data from general partners, like private equity firms. We think it'll be helpful for other private equity firms that, um, maybe earlier on in their journey, and mm-hmm. then also helpful for portfolio companies that are trying to navigate this real time. So the three steps Sorry. are this. Um, one is thinking about it through a private equity materiality focus. So um, this is more kind of looking at where the companies are in the world. If, are they subject to EU regulations where the standards are higher on some categories than others? Or are they subject to US, Europe, or... Um, Asia, et cetera Where are they in the world? what are the ge- geographical mm-hmm. regulations that they should be thinking about not only regulations but also the benchmarking of the industry in that right. part of the world. What kind of investments are you making? So in private equity, you know, there's a huge range. that can be, as I mentioned, I started out this conversation saying we do anything from earlier stage to later stage. And that's really meaningful because if we have an ownership stake, yeah. uh, control stake in a company where we have several board seats, we can do a lot with the company, if we have very small minority or non-control stakes, that can be a very different conversation with, and hmm. we would have to partner with other sponsors, so, and other owners of the firm. So, it's um, interesting. yeah, that, was- that sliding scale is really important. Yeah hold period is also another thing that we think about you know some investors may have a shorter hold period of a couple years others may have six to seven year hold period so that that's a huge amount of variability so first is kind of putting in context of like what what is the type of investment that you're having where is it in the world Mm -hmm. the second is the typical sasb um you know materiality map of industry specific esg factors that are most financially material to the business so the things that we're going to look at for an industrials company you know, health and safety, product quality, carbon emissions, about air emissions, using right. chemicals, things like that are going to be very different from what a tech SaaS company that has just office space and on the and on the software cloud as like, a
0: service SaaS. Yeah, exactly. Just in case anyone doesn't oh, yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. Most people should, but
1: <laughs> go ahead. So, sorry. So yeah, software <laughs> company that is on the cloud and mm-hmm. is um, has least space maybe less of a materiality factor though though it may be material if they're you know for carbon emissions um less material than industrial but Mm -hmm. much more material is their use of data their data privacy standards um, and so that materiality lens is key and then the third step is having an understanding of where the company is in its maturity around basic business processes but also where they what their aspirations are around esg and kind of right sizing it to that. If you have, mm-hmm. you know, I had a company the other day, say, you know, we're, you know, 300 million, we wanna be a billion dollars in the next couple of years. What do we need? What is the ESG program that we need to have when we're a billion dollar company? Right. It's a great question. You know, that's an aspiration that they really have and they wanna, um, they wanna track to, and, yeah. and there's a different set of KPIs that I would probably recommend to there. As a starting point, we would have a more aggressive kind of ramp up period versus a more startup business that is, you know, doesn't have a head of HR, it doesn't have a head of right. <laughs> most of these. <laughs> yeah. and, and we're just like, oh, look, you can start with the minimum things yeah. and, and then we can work as you scale and grow, we can yeah. help you kind of think through those. So those three steps I think kind of give it a little bit more perspective. And rather than again, you know, when we're thinking back about, you know, the reporting we have to do. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is important to our limited partners, is important to regulators, and we'll absolutely do that. But how we how we can trace those same metrics and say, how can we actually use this within the company context or in our investment decision-making to help us understand how we can create value or preserve value or create value from this investment?
0: Oh, wow, Leila, this is so helpful. I know people are just going to, eat up this episode with <laughs> all the in-depth information that you've shared. I love the three-step process for private equity. And I think it's going to be super helpful. Um, we'll definitely include a resource link with this episode as always, so that folks can take a look in more depth at that, at that process. I don't have anything else that I can add. This is just so, uh, what a fantastic episode. Um, do you have any sort of closing thoughts before we sign off?
1: I would just say I think an ESG person's favorite word is journey, and but this is exactly <laughs> what it is.
0: <laughs> it's a journey.
1: <laughs> so I think it is interesting yeah. though. That's what we're trying to create here is just that step of like, are you? Do you just want to do the minimum stuff right now and kind of aspire for something later, yeah. or do you want to be the advanced in- industry leader here? But I would just I think um, just going back to the beginning of like definitions of why we're doing this to begin with, and this is again a way that we look at how we we think companies can, you know, create either preserve value or create value. Right. And so if you think it through that, it can cut through the noise and use data to to support those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um that's what we're striving for. And yeah, that's all I will leave you with that.
0: That's perfect. Well, and and I just want to say too, before we stand out, that we're so grateful to have you on our board at Climco, to have Warburg Pincus as an investment partner, as well as Heritage. We're just so grateful for the support from our investors. And thank you so much for being here to share your perspective.
1: Great. Thanks a lot, Caitlin. Yeah.